0: This fall, I'm going to be facilitating a six-session class here at UUCF on bioethics. This sermon is a preview of some of the contemporary issues that we'll be covering, such as the revolutionary new genome editing technology, CRISPR. Now, how many of you have been following the news on CRISPR? All right, quite a few of you. And now, as as most of you probably know, I'm not talking about CRISPR with an ER, like the drawer in your refrigerator that keeps your lettuce fresh. I'm talking about CRISPR, uh, all capitalized, C-R-I-S-P-R, which uh, is an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. That clears it all up, right? No worries, more clarity forthcoming. Other major themes of the class will be research on humans, reproductive technologies, genetic choices, dividing up healthcare resources, and ethics for medical professionals. Then in November, there'll be a second Sunday service on the topic of bioethics that'll incorporate some of the insights from that class. But regarding the relevancy of this topic, consider these headlines from the New York Times just from the past six weeks, breaking news that I had no idea would be the case when I first planned this sermon. The first headline is from July 27th, In U.S. First, Scientists Edit Genes of Human Embryo. It says, in U.S. first, not in just a first, because Chinese scientists were the first to experiment with this breakthrough two years ago in mid-2015. And that highlights a crucial factor in these bioethical debates. Not only should we do something, but also what happens if others move forward and we do not. The headline continues, Scientists Edit Genes of Human Embryos. It's important to add that these embryos were not allowed to develop for more than a few days, and there was never any intention to implant them in a womb. In other words, we're currently holding ourselves back. Perhaps rightly so, but it depends on whom you ask. We can talk about it. Sign up for the class. Uh, it'll start the September 19th uh, at 7, um, so more information forthcoming. The second headline is from August 30th. FDA approves first gene-altering leukemia treatment, costing $475,000. A week ago this past Wednesday, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved, as I said, the first-ever treatment that genetically alters a patient's own cells to fight cancer. This is a milestone that is expected to transform oncology in coming years. This particular treatment was for a exp- um, particularly aggressive type of leukemia, but many similar gene therapies are in the pipeline. That half a million dollar um, uh, price tag is because each single dose must be tailored to the individual, which can make the treatment particularly effective, but it definitely makes it particularly expensive. But we already know that the first child to receive this therapy, her name was, uh, is Emily Whitehead. She was six and near death from leukemia in 2012. Now 12, she has been free of leukemia for five years. Such possibilities open up a whole new world beyond today's typical regimen of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. A helpful guide to this cutting-edge world of possibilities is titled, I think rightly, A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution. It's by Jennifer Dudna and Samuel Sternberg. To name one among her many appointments, Dudna is uh, in the Chemistry and Molecular and Cell Biology Department at the University of California, Berkeley, and Sternberg is a fellow researcher and doctoral level biochemist in his own right. And while I mainly want to focus this morning on the technology and the implications of it, I can't resist sharing the story of what helped launch Dr. Dudna on a trajectory toward becoming an internationally renowned expert on genome engineering. When she was 12, she returned home from school to find on her bed a tattered copy, copy of James Watson's The Double Helix. She writes... My dad would occasionally pick up books for me at used bookstores to see if they sparked any interest in his young child. And me, thinking this book was a detective novel, which actually it kind of was, I set it aside for some weeks before diving into it one rainy afternoon. Um, I felt the first tugs of an interest that would eventually guide me on a similar path. I love that. I, I find it fascinating to trace the difficult-to-predict sparks that can grow into lifelong passions. And for Dudna, that passion for discovery, first ignited by reading about the mid-20th century discovery of DNA's molecular structure, led to the innovation of the CRISPR gene-editing technology. But perhaps appropriately for an invention whose full implications are far from clear, these scientists, they they didn't set out to say, my goal is to turn biotechnology and bioethics on their head. Rather, their intention was merely to research the ways that bacteria defend themselves against viral infection. But in so doing, they stumbled backward into the workings of an incredible molecular machine that can slice apart viral DNA with exquisite precision. The utility of the same machine to perform DNA manipulations, not only in bacteria, but in other types of cells, including human cells, was immediately clear. And it's at this point that bioethicists strenuously disagree. In politics, the saying goes that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Likewise, in regard to bioethics, one person's sacrilege is another person's sacred responsibility. Some people view any form of genetic manipulation as heinous, a perverse violation of the sacred laws of nature and of the dignity of life. Others see our human genome as just software, something we can fix, clean, edit, and upgrade, and argue that leaving human beings at the mercy of faulty genetics is not only irrational but immoral. Considerations like these has led some to cause for the outright banning of the editing of the genome of unborn humans, and others to say scientists forge ahead without restraint. One side argues that beware the law of unintended consequences. The other says someday, we, someday soon we may consider it unethical not to use germline editing to alleviate human suffering. Uh, We'll talk about related um, bioethical case studies. Like We already have um, court cases where parents say, we believe that prayer is the only right way to cure diseases, and courts have said, no, we're going to intervene and force you to use modern medicine. So we may see similar things around genome editing. But all these are fairly theoretical, so speculation aside, let me tell you about what has already happened. Newspaper headlines notwithstanding, it seems pretty evident to me that scientific research is significantly outpacing public awareness of bioethical breakthroughs. Because we already know that scientists have already harnessed CRISPR to generate genetically enhanced versions of the beagle, creating dogs with Schwarzenegger-like supermuscular physiques, by making single letter DNA changes to a gene that controls muscle function. In another case, by inactivating a gene in the pig genome that relates to the growth hormone, researchers have created what they call micro pigs, uh, no bigger than large cats, which could be sold as pets. Meanwhile, you all want one now, right? (laughs) Meanwhile, in the plant world, gene editing experiments have produced disease-resistant rice, tomatoes that ripen more slowly, soybeans with healthier polyunsaturated fat content, all by fine-tuning genetic upgrades involving changes to just a few letters of each organism's DNA. In recent experiments, CRISPR has been used to humanize the DNA of pigs, giving rise to hopes that we could someday grow pigs specifically to serve as organ donors for specific human beings, what's called xenotransplantation. In laboratory-grown human cells, this new gene-editing technology has been used to correct mutations responsible for cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, and many other disorders. So much more is quickly becoming possible, or is already possible, but we're not sure collectively if it's a good idea to try. Some of you will recall the tale of Prometheus, the deity in Greek mythology who was both the creator of humanity and its greatest benefactor, who stole fire from Mount Olympus and gave it to humankind. With CRISPR, we are playing with fire, meaning the great potential promise and peril of using such tools. Now, the best metaphor I've heard for how CRISPR works, for those of us who don't have a doctorate in biochemistry, that um, book I mentioned, A Cracking Creation, it's it's pretty accessible. But even though there are a fair amount of pictures, there were definitely points where I'm like, yeah, I'm only kind of understanding what this is really about. But here's the metaphor. CRISPR is kind of like a designer molecular Swiss army knife which can home in on specific 20-letter DNA sequences and cut apart both strands of the DNA double helix and make changes. The real rub for bioethics arises because CRISPR can not only edit somatic cells, so say I wanted to change something in my body, it can go beyond that to edit what are called germline cells, which means that those changes made to germline cells would be passed on to any future generations. So that, that's where CRISPR becomes particularly... Um, problematic or promising, depending on what you're talking about. All of a sudden, we humans, ourselves products of the evolutionary process, have the power to micromanage the evolutionary process in a way much more robust than has ever, and precise than has ever been possible. Now, because of course, for thousands of years, we've been doing similar things through cross-breeding of plants and animals, but this is a whole other level of paradigm. So should we begin editing genes in unborn children to lower their lifetime risk of heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and cancer? What about endowing unborn children with, I'm going to use the phrase beneficial, right? Beneficial according to whom, but endowing unborn children with traits like greater strength, increased cognitive abilities. What about changing physical shapes, selecting your child's eye color or hair color? These are questions of genetics that don't even touch the coming augmentations that will be possible through artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and other forms of bioenhancement, all of which we'll delve into more deeply in the class this fall, as well as the sermon in November. For now, as some context for how rapidly these changes have been happening in recent decades and how quickly further changes could be coming in recent years, if we turn back the clock around 40 years to 1978, some of you will remember the name Louise Brown. She was the world's first test tube baby, proving that human procreation could be reduced to simple laboratory procedures, the mixing of purified eggs and sperm in a Petri dish, the fostering of a zygote as it grew into a multicellular embryo, and the implantation of that embryo in a female womb, in vitro fertilization, as it's known, or IVF. Around that time in the 1980s, scientists were content, they were excited to be able to edit individual genes at efficiencies that were just fractions of a percent. In other words, not very efficient at all. Then a little less than 30 years ago in 1990, headlines broke about scientists teaming up around the world to sequence the human genome. And in 1996, the world witnessed the birth of Dolly the sheep, the first successful cloning of a mammal. And we now know that less than 20 years ago, in 2001, thanks to Herculean efforts and at the cost of more than $3 billion, the first draft of the Human Genome Project was complete. By then, scientists were able to edit individual gene cells at the efficiencies of low single-digit percentages. Still not very efficient. But suddenly, in just the past few years with CRISPR, gene editing is now so powerful and multifaceted that it's often referred to not even as gene editing, but as genome engineering. We can engineer genomes. The other big thing is unlike the Human Genome Project, which costs $3 billion, we're talking about like a few thousand dollars to set up a CRISPR lab. This is in, in, pretty cheap technology to use. To give you a further example of the power that CRISPR holds, we humans could potentially choose to wield this new technology to, for example, make mosquitoes less dangerous or to make the mosquito extinct. Why would we want to do that beyond having less annoying mosquito bites? Well, the mosquito arguably causes as much or more human suffering as any other creature on this earth. Mosquito-borne diseases, malaria, dengue fever, West Nile virus, yellow fever virus, chikungunya virus, Zika virus, and many others have an annual death toll in excess of one million. CRISPR-based gene drives might be the best weapon we have against that pervasive threat. Here's the even more head-spinning twist. If we were to regret making mosquitoes extinct, another feature of CRISPR is maybe we could just bring them back, Jurassic Park style, in the same way that CRISPR could allow us to bring back um, the woolly mammoth and other species. Cue the hashtag, Law of Unintended Consequences. None of this is an exaggeration. There really are earth-shattering consequences at stake. Indeed, the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee in its worldwide threat assessment describes genome engineering as one of the six greatest weapons of mass destruction and proliferation that nation states might try to develop at great peril to the United States. The others are Russian cruise missiles, Syrian and Iraqi chemical weapons, and the nuclear weapon programs of Iran, China, in North Korea. There's indeed much to be wrestled with about the implications of this forthcoming technology, but we already live in a world in which human, CRISPR has made the human genome essentially as easily manipulable as that of a bacterium. For almost all the related bioethical questions, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how. To quote the late Marshall Nirenberg, who shared the Nobel Prize in 1968 for breaking the genetic code, humanity's power to shape its destiny either wisely or unwisely for the betterment or detriment of humankind is up to us. I'm also tempted to pause now and re-preach my sermon from a few months ago on eugenics. But the truth is that 21st century bioethics is more complicated than rejecting 20th century eugenics, which in the most cases was clearly racist and repugnant. For a more 21st century perspective, consider the view of Charles Sabine who lives with Huntington's disease. For him, he says, anyone who has actually had to face the reality of one of these diseases is not going to have the remotest compunction about thinking there's any issue at all if I could get rid of my hunting disease or stop myself from passing it on to my children. Now, you may or may not disagree, but there are people who feel quite strongly about the need to pursue the power of new biotechnologies. And for better or worse, we likely don't have the luxury of indecision, as the historian uh, Howard Zinn used to say, you can't stay neutral on a moving train. If we do not explore bioethical frontiers, other nations already are. So as we wrestle with the forthcoming bioethical dilemmas, I'll remind you of Pope Francis' message to Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, which Nancy shared earlier. Never has humanity had such power over itself, yet nothing ensures it will be used wisely. Cook's related insights for those recent MIT grads are also vital. He said, technology is capable of doing great things, but it doesn't want to do great things. Technology doesn't want anything. That's where we come in. It takes our values, our commitment, our love, our interconnectedness, our decency, our kindness. The frontiers of biotechnology are both fascinating and frightening as, par- as one piece of important One important touchstone from our own UU tradition is our fourth principle, that our search for truth and meaning should be both free and responsible. The free and responsible search for truth and meaning. None of us knows what the future will bring, but I am grateful to be part of this congregation and the larger UU movement that cares deeply about spirituality and science. And here at the beginning of my sixth year as your minister, I'm grateful to be on this journey with all of you. In that spirit, on this Water Communion Sunday, I've intentionally chosen as our responsive hymn, number 145, as Tranquil Streams. This was the hymn that in 1961 when the Universalist Church of America and the American Unitarian Union Association met separately to vote on whether they would merge and then both did meet to merge. The song that they sang as they processed in together as a new uniting body was this hymn. Let's rise in body or spirit as we sing together. So as we prepare to go into the rest of today and the week to come, I know that many of us hold in our hearts all those that are suffering from the hurricanes as well as the more than 800,000 um, young dreamers, immigrants to this country um, whose lives are now on a countdown clock uh, in a very cruel and inhumane decision. In that spirit, I invite you to hear a poem um written just a few days ago uh, wrestling with all of that by uh the Reverend Hannah Vilnaves Roberts. Many of you will remember she preached here a few um weeks well it's been a few months ago now, and has now been called to be the full-time minister of the UU Congregation of Cheyenne, Wyoming. These are Hannah's words. The skies are raging and winds blow entire islands down. The earth is raging. Fire consumes what it's in its path, no regard for frightened deer or houses built with rugged hands or beloved trees marked with blazes along a trail. The waters are raging from Texas to Florida to Nepal, and so many are wondering when their home will be dry again. And my heart is raging from declarations from on high that some of us seem to not deserve the designation of human, of beloved, of sacred, or belonging. But I reject that. And in this storm, we meet again this morning to say again, welcome to friend and kin and stranger, to offer our promise together that while this world rages, we will remain awake to pain and sorrow, to offer our promise together that while this world rages, we will remain tethered to one another.